Well, about 10 years ago, in 2012, uh, a, uh, a saturation diver, I'll explain what that is in a minute, called Chris uh, Lemons, was about 127 miles out in the North Sea. Uh, saturation diving is a type of diving that none of us mere mortals would ever do. Um, these guys spend their, not their whole lives, but a lot of their life down at the bottom of the ocean and on the seabed. And uh, they train to be able to, down, to, to be down there in a specific way that allows their body to function with, with less oxygen. Like we all need oxygen to breathe. Obviously, there's less oxygen down in the sea. And, and the way that they uh, undertake this work, and it's usually uh, for a uh, purpose like uh, maintaining oil rigs and different things on the bottom of the ocean. And uh, the way they undertake it is uh, there is a ship that, that stays on the top of the sea and the ship lowers down something called, called a diving bell. And this diving bell is a bit of a temporary home for these divers. So it's a, you know, a dry dome and there's air in there, there's light, there's heat, there's communications. And there's a, an umbilical cord, they call it, a, a, a group of, of wires and, and things that go up to the ship that send all of the essentials down to that diving bell. All of the, the power, all of the heat, the communications. And as long as that diving bell is connected to the ship, then everything's okay. Now, these divers go down in the diving bell. They sit in there until it's safe for them to go down onto the seabed. And when it's safe, they drop down into a hole and they swim down and they do what they need to do um, on, on the bottom of the seabed. Chris uh, Lemons is down there, 127 miles out from the coast, somewhere near 90 metres down. He's been dropped out of the diving bell. He's doing some work on an oil rig. Uh, what he doesn't know is the ship on the top of the surface is beginning to experience some difficulties. There's a storm that's uh, started in the North Sea. And it starts uh, uh, affecting the navigation system of the boat to the point where the navigation system goes down entirely. Now, for all of this thing to work, the ship's got to stay still. Otherwise, the guy on the bottom of the ocean starts getting dragged along. Well, the navigation system gets knocked out and the ship begins to drift. And as the ship begins to drift... The diving bell begins to drift with it. And as the diving bell begins to drift, because they're all connected, Chris begins to drift. And he starts getting dragged along the ocean floor until he gets caught in a bit of apparatus. And his umbilical cord, which is attached to the diving bell, gets wrapped around it. And under the tension, it snaps. And he drops to the bottom of the ocean with no air, no light, no heat. And no communications. He's got about 15 minutes of air supply left in his suit. And so he sits and he waits for five minutes. No one comes. Ten minutes. No one comes. Fifteen minutes. No one comes. Half an hour. And he's still there on his own on the bottom of the ocean floor with no connection to anyone. And it's 45 minutes until anyone manages to reach him. Now, I'm trying to like think, how do I do this without spoiling the story? I'm going to have to spoil it in some way because when he is writing after the event about what happens, this is what he says. As he's lying in the pitch black at the bottom of the ocean, you know, he should be dead. 45 minutes he's down there. But he realizes that his umbilical cord is snapped. And after a while, he says this, I accepted that I had no hope. I was powerless. Without my lifeline... I could do nothing. Now, when it comes to the mission of God, folks, this call that we've seen over the last few weeks, this call that is unique to God's people, this call that we've been given to be 
to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that from Acts chapter 1 verse 8. To be witnesses in Jerusalem and then out to Judea, Samaria and then onto the ends of the earth. This call that is put on every single one of our lives who would profess the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Saviour. This call that we say at liberty is to be a people of truth, transformation and presence. Being tangibly present in the place that God has sovereignly placed us in both word and indeed that unique call that is put on our lives. We cannot do it unless we are connected. We must come to the same conclusion that, that Chris Lemons comes to. That unless we are connected to, to the source of power which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we are powerless. We can do nothing when it comes to the mission. Unless we are constantly connected to him, drawing from him, listening to him, drawing down on his power, then then when it comes to the mission, we are powerless. But God, in his kindness, has given us means for us to be connected to Jesus. We are, if we are Christians, we are united to him. We have a union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit that can never be undone. And we are constantly able to come to him for help. We are constantly able to to have a line of communication with him. That that kind of umbilical cord that that the deep sea diver has a constant means of communication. A way of, of speaking to him, hearing from him, drawing his power when we need it. We have this gift of being able to pray. But folks, it is not just a gift. It is a necessity for us. It's a necessity. See, when it comes to the mission, here is a statement of truth. Prayerless mission is fruitless mission. Prayerless mission is fruitless mission. And we might think, well, that's, that's a bit of a, a generalization. Like we know that we've, we've engaged in different types of missional activity and we, and we haven't necessarily prayed about it, but we've seen fruit. Like people have come along to church, even when we've not prayed for them to come along to church. We've had great gospel conversations with people, even when we, we haven't prayed for those gospel conversations. But, but folks, when I say prayerless mission is fruitless mission, we need to be really clear what the fruit of the mission is. Because I think a lot of us can think that the fruit of the mission, this calling to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ, this this stepping into the Great Commission, we can think that the ultimate fruit of the mission is to see people saved. It's to see people brought into the family of God. It's to see people being transformed from, from sinners into saints. And we can think once we see that we've arrived, that's the fruit of the mission. And that is a wonderful thing. And we should all long for that and we should all pour our energy into that. But that is not the ultimate goal. That is not the the, the kind of end purpose and the ultimate fruit that we want when we're stepping into the mission of God. The ultimate purpose of the mission of God is this. The glory of God. It's that all creation would see the greatness and the awesomeness of God. We just sung it then. He deserves the greater glory. More glory than we could ever want. He deserves it all. And when we engage in mission, we might achieve the goal of seeing the lost one. Praise the Lord when and if we do. But if we do that without dependence on God, we are doing it in our own strength. And when we do missional activity, when we engage in missional activity in our own strength, the temptation is this, folks. Look what we did. 
look how great we are as a church. Look how successful that, that little ministry was. Look at, look at how all of our efforts paid off. And when we do that, when we, when we function in our own strength and neglect to go to God in dependency on prayer, we deprive God of his glory. And that is never a place that we want to be. You know, folks, I have a suspicion when we look and we think of our city and we think of a time not that long ago, just a few decades ago, when there were churches all over this city and a lot of the churches were full. Some of you remember it. And they were thriving. And they were full of Jesus worshippers and they were engaged in missional activity. And yet now they're closed. And they're becoming apartment blocks and coffee shops and mosques. Like my suspicion is this. In those churches, I suspect that probably they've lost their way when they've become to be more concerned about about, about their ministry and actually building something for themselves than the glory of God. Here's another suspicion that, that I have. When, when we look out into the Christian media and we see, um, you know, people who've had successful, fruitful ministries, well-known Christians, well-known pastors, well-known leaders, these people who have great ministries, and then all of a sudden we see a devastating fall from grace. Like, we've seen those stories My suspicion is that if we track the amount of time that they had spent on their knees in prayer, praying and just pouring into into just a, a posture of dependency on God for God to move, for God's glory. If we track the amount of time that they'd spent on their knees in that type of prayer against the decline in their ministry, I think we'd see a correlation. I think that we'd see that one probably has led to another. Prayer fundamentally, folks, is an act of dependence on God. When we pray, we are asking God to intervene. We're asking him to move. We're asking him to provide. And when he does, we're able to look back and say, look what he did. Look at how he moved. Look at how he provided. Look at what he did. And when when we say that, who gets the glory? He gets the glory. You know, when we gather for our family prayer once a month, we do this as a church. We pray a lot as a church in our gospel communities, individually. But one of the high points of our, of our month is when we gather for family prayer. And we all pile in together and we spend time just bringing different things towards God in prayer. And, and my favourite part of that evening is when we throw up all of the things that we've prayed for last month. And we get to see how God has, has moved and answered those things. And a lot of times, it's in ways that, that we've never asked him. We ask him to do things in this way, but he's like, no, no, I'll answer it and I'll do it in this way. But, but in every case, he has heard our prayer and he answers them. And hands down, my favourite bit is just to look back and go, wow, look what he's done. Look at what he's done. Look at how God has moved. Look at how we've come to him in dependence with, with open hands. And we said, God, we need you to move. And he's heard our prayers. And he's acted and he gets all the glory. When we come to God in prayer, when we see the prayerless mission is fruitless mission and actually we flip that on its head and say prayer filled mission is fruitful mission, he gets all the glory. Think of Habakkuk 2.14, the great purpose of the mission. The great purpose 
of the mission that God's glory would cover the earth. The knowledge of God's glory would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Prayer-fueled mission is us leaning into God and saying, God, without you, we are powerless. We need you. We need you to move. We need you to act. We want you to. Because we want you to get all the glory when you do. Fruitful mission will be fueled by prayer. That's exactly what we see in the early church, in Acts. We've been in Acts over the last few weeks as we just sought to see what it looks like for us to be a church who, who are grounded in God's truth, who are seeking genuine transformation, spiritual transformation in each other's lives, who are, who are being a people who are tangibly present. We've seen how the, the early church in Acts, they, they have the same values. They call them different things, but they were people of truth. They were people who, who poured into disciple in relationships and they were tangibly present in word and deed. But we see throughout that, they were a people who soaked their missional activity in prayer. They were completely dependent on prayer. Look at this, Acts chapter 1, the church prayed for guidance and making decisions. Acts chapter 4, they pray for courage in order to witness for Christ. Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 6 they just pray as part of their normal day. The, the, just the, the normal rhythms of the day, they gathered together and they prayed. And these are, these are specific prayers, not just for themselves, but more often than not, for the people that they're trying to reach. Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is being stoned to death, what's he doing? Praying. Acts chapter 8, we saw this last week. Peter and John, they pray for the Samaritans as they came to faith. Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus, immediately after he is converted, he prays. Again, later on in Acts chapter 9, Peter prays before he raises Dorcas from the dead. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius prays that God would show him how to be saved. And then later on in Acts chapter 10, Peter is on the housetop praying that God would help him to show Cornelius how to be saved. (laughs) Like it's just prayer all over the place. And what we see in the early church is the mission was fruitful. And God was glorified as they depended on him in prayer. As we come to God's word for us this afternoon, folks, I don't think the call is going to be for us necessarily as a church to pray more. Like, I actually think we, we could always pray more. Of course we could. As a church, there is a, a healthy dynamic of prayer. And, and we're always going to say, you know, it'd be great if we could pray more. And actually, individually for you, maybe as we read this passage together, maybe you feel the Holy Spirit prompting that in your heart. And if that's the case, then praise God. Maybe maybe he's going to lead you to see that you need to pray more. But actually, I think probably probably what we're going to hear and what we're going to be encouraged towards this afternoon is this. Not necessarily to pray more, but it's going to be an encouragement towards a certain posture of prayer. We'll see what that looks like in Acts chapter 12. Just turn with me. In your Bibles there, I'm going to read from verses 1 to 19. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 to 19. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. 
bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. At this point in in Acts, we're about 10 years into the mission. That mission that's given in Acts 1 verse 8 to be witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. We're about 10 years in from there. And at this point in the city of Jerusalem, the gospel is, is wreaking Christian havoc, spiritual havoc. It's transforming the city. And Herod doesn't like it. So he tries to shut it down. He starts with executing one of the, the church leaders, James. That isn't the James who we um, uh, read from later on in, in Scripture. This is a different James. And he executes him. And then he moves on to Peter. He puts Peter in prison under heavy guard. So Peter's there with, with a chains on his hands. He's chained to two Roman soldiers. And then there's more Roman soldiers outside of the prison, just in case he tries to escape. And so just, just like picture the scene in Jerusalem, we've already seen Stephen being stoned to death. And lots of the church being scattered as a result of that. First Stephen, now James, and now Peter's next. And the writing on the wall is on the wall for Peter. It's clear what is coming next. Like there's some kind of cultural things going on. But, but in verse 6, it's clear what Herod wants to do with Peter. He wants to bring him out a little bit like Barabbas and Jesus during the Passover and say to the crowds, okay, what do you want me to do with him? He wants Peter dead. Peter's execution is looming. And so the church gathered to pray. And we can learn a lot from their posture as they gather to pray. Firstly, we learn this, that they were united in their prayer. In verse 12, they are united in their prayer. We read that they are gathered together. The need that night was clear. And so they gathered together in Mary's house. It's probably likely, actually, they've been gathered for a few days there. They know what's coming for Peter, and so they gather together. They're united in their prayer. And folks, as a church... Unity as we stand together in prayer is so important. Psalm 133 says this, it is good and pleasant for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity because there 
God pours out his blessing. When brothers and sisters are, are together, when we are united, God pours out his blessing. James 5 verse 16, Elizabeth and I were, were encouraged with this verse from someone this week. The prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. There is something about our posture corporately and individually as we pray that's important. It's important that we're able to come together as, as God's people who are righteous. Like, like there, aren't, there aren't sins that, that, that we're really kind of taken hold of and are taken hold of us and, and we're enjoying and indulging in those things. It's right that we come into a posture of prayer in a sense, righteous before God. And it's right that we come united together as God's people. Now, I suspect if we'd have gone and joined in that prayer meeting in Mary's house and we'd have sat everyone down to the cake, can we, just, can we just take a poll? Like, who in this room has got some issues with someone else in the room? Like, I guess people's hands would have gone up. Like, it, it wasn't a perfect church. Like, our church isn't a perfect... There, there is no such thing yet as a perfect church. There would have been issues in the church. There would have been little niggles. There would have been little frustrations. But on that night, the need was clear. And so they gathered together. They pushed those things aside and they prayed. And they were united in their prayer. You know, going back to those churches around our city. One of the reasons that they aren't gathering together as churches now is because they lost sight of the glory of God. But I suspect there are also many churches in our city that aren't churches anymore because seeds of division have taken hold of those churches. Little just cracks of disagreement and, and, and little frustrations where, where people aren't able to get their preferences have come into the life of the church and they've started as cracks and they've led to division and ultimately led to the death of those churches. I think a lot of us have probably experienced some of those things as well. Where people's preferences have got in the way of the mission. Where they become more important than the 98% of the people that we talked about last week who are outside of these doors, whose eternal destiny far outweighs our little niggles and our little preferences and our little disagreements. So here's a plea, Liberty Church. Let us not let frustration and grumbles and disappointments get in the way of the mission. We can't afford to. For the love of our brothers and sisters, like we want to be united together because we love one another, but also for the sake of the lost. Let's not let those niggles distract us from the calling that God has put on our lives to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. They were united in prayer. And in verse 5, Luke tells us that they were earnest in prayer or urgent in prayer. That word earnest there, it's the same word that's used to describe like the, the stretching out of a muscle. Like when a muscle, a muscle is like extended to its full extent and it can't be exerted anymore. Like that's the same word. It's the same word that is used of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is agonizing in prayer. That's what's happening here. It's an urgency. It's a weight in prayer. And when we think of that need in our community, folks, for the truth of the gospel to go out, our response must be urgent. It must be. We must have that same posture where we agonize over the lost. Listen to this. It'll come up on the screen here. This is from William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. And he's, he's sharing with a congregation who are coming to him and saying, you know, he was a, he was a man who was passionate about missions. And they're coming to him and saying, 
okay, we get that the church need, needs missions. But that's for the missionaries. Okay, that's for those people over there. Like, like, we're not called for that. They're called for that. And this is what William Booth says. Not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull the sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonised heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. Then look at Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. See, in the church of Jerusalem, the issue at hand was urgent. And so their prayers were urgent. For William Booth, as he looked out at the lost and the hopeless and the helpless, it was urgent. And so he came to the church and he mobilised them to be urgent in their action. Folks, when we look at the community around us, I'm not going to go over it again because we went there last week. The 98% of the people in our streets, our neighbours, our colleagues, our friends, our family, the need is urgent. And so our prayers must be urgent. What does that look like? What does it look like for us to have an urgency in our prayers? Well, maybe we could be like the Jerusalem church and just stay up all night and, and all day and pray. Maybe, maybe one day. Or maybe we could just start with this. Making your prayers missional. I wonder if we look back at our prayers from this week and just, just saw how much of our prayers were about us and how much of our prayers were about them. How the statistics would tally. And folks, it doesn't need to be hard. Like if, you, if part of your rhythm is to, is to pray before you go out in the morning, maybe some of us have that opportunity around the dinner table with our families or, or with spouses, or even if you're on your own, just as you get ready for the day to go out and you're spending a bit of time in prayer, maybe just, just pop a missional prayer in like this. Jesus, would you open a door for a gospel conversation today? That's a missional prayer. And he hears it and he loves to answer those prayers. Or maybe just as you're going about through the day, like, Jesus, would you just, would you just soften that person's heart? I've been trying and it just feels like I'm getting, would you just soften a heart by your spirit? Mm. And just bring in just those little missional prayers throughout the day. And, and it's not bad to pray for yourself. That's a good thing. But if we're going to take this call and the urgency of the call seriously, then I think our prayers need to reflect that. Pray missional prayers. We need to be urgent in our prayer and then we need to be unceasing in our prayer. When Peter arrives at Mary's house in verse 13, it's the middle of the night. And I think that's, that's there to show us that they were praying in the middle of the night. They've been there through the evening, probably through the day, maybe a few days, coming together and praying. They committed this issue of Peter to prayer and they were going to keep on praying until they'd heard that God had moved. It's interesting, in verse 6, <coughs> the outcome of Peter's imprisonment seems so certain. Herod is going to bring him out the next day. He's going to bring him out for his execution. But even though the outcome is certain, the church keep praying. 
they don't stop praying. And so the encouragement for us, folks, is this. Don't give up in your prayers. Don't give up in your prayers for God to move in the lives of the lost. You know, I shared with quite, quite a few of you. Um, so I'm one of four kids and three of us are all serving the Lord in different ways. But my brother isn't. Um, he's rejected Jesus and he's heard the gospel probably thousands of times. We grew up going to church together and he's heard what I've heard. And I've, I've sat down with him many times and shared the gospel with him. And he's told me to my face, he's not interested. He doesn't want to follow Jesus. And it came to a head five years ago on Good Friday. I drove over to see him. I, I sat down with him in his front room and I said, Sean, I'm going to tell you this one last time. And I just want you just to hear the gospel. And I shared the gospel with him and I prayed with him. And I said, I'm not, I'm not going to share this with you again, but I want you to hear this. I'm going to pray for you every day until something changes. And that's where I did. That's what I do. And the, the writing seems to be on the wall for us, Sean. He's got no interest in Jesus. If anything, it feels like he's getting further away. But texts like this encourage us to keep praying, even if the outcome of the situation seems certain. Peter was going to be executed the next day. And yet the church carried on praying. And so I wonder who that might be for you. Who your Sean's might be. That maybe you've just given up and you're like, do you know what? The writing's on the wall for them. Nothing's changing. They're getting further away from Jesus. What's the point? Now keep praying. Don't give up. Even when the situation in human terms looks certain, don't give up. Keep praying until you hear that God has moved. Or until you go to be with him. Don't give up. They're unceasing in prayer. And then lastly, they're expectant in prayer. That's interesting. When we read the book of Acts, like I think we can always just read it as like, this is so normal. <laughs> this isn't normal. <laughs> Especially in, in Acts 12. Like there's just miraculous, crazy stuff going on in here. And it's only the power of God that could explain what is happening. The power of God sends the angel to free Peter. The power of God releases him from his chains. The power of God opens the gate. The power of God leads him out just down one street. I don't know why it's just the one street, but it leads him out down one street. And in verse 11, Peter comes to the conclusion himself that this is the power of God. It's not happened through his own strength. It's not happened because he's orchestrated it. He says this, I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel. And has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. It's the Lord who's done it. And when he arrives at Mary's house in verse 12, he finds the church gathered together, praying for him. Then we just get this funny episode that happens next. Like he's knocking at the door and this little servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door. And we, you know, imagine it's probably not a door with glass in it. It's a solid door, but she knows it's Peter. Like they're all in that room praying for Peter. And he's at the door. And Rhoda hears him. But in her excitement, doesn't even open the door. She just runs back into the other room where they're all praying and says, he's here. Peter's here. And they can't believe it. You're out of, out of your mind, Rhoda. Maybe she was one of those girls. Bit of a Micah who just, you know, tells long stories. You're out of your mind. 
No, it's really Peter. He's at the door. And all the while, Peter's banging on the door. Let me in, guys. Don't forget, people are after him. He's just escaped from prison. He wants to get in the house. He doesn't want to be staying out there too long. But they're all in there having this discussion whether it is actually Peter or not. It must be his angel. Eventually, they let him in. And it's him. And it's interesting. When we read this passage, certainly when I've read it before and I've heard it preached this way, like... Like when Rhoda goes in to tell the folks that Peter's here, like we often come to the conclusion that the issue is they don't believe, like they've been praying that he would be freed, but they don't actually believe that he would be freed. Like their faith is weak. You know, they've been praying all night that God would free him from jail. And then when he actually turns up, they, they, they don't actually believe that God God has done that. And it's a, it's a demonstration of the weakness of their faith. And the lesson is we need, to be, we need to be stronger in our faith. I don't think that's right. I don't think this church lacked faith. Like think of, about what's going on in Jerusalem. Stephen's just been stoned. James has just been executed. People are fleeing, getting out of the city. Yet this church has stayed put. They've stayed there. And they're praying the night. They're standing with Peter. I don't think this is an issue of faith, folks. I think this is an issue of expectation in prayer. I think that they had faith that God would move. They just didn't expect that it would be like that. Whereas I wonder, I think Peter did. Like, look at Peter in verse 6 here. His execution is coming the next day. And what's he doing? What's he doing? He's asleep. Like, He's going to be murdered the next day. He is in chains. He has two Roman guards next to him. There are more Roman guards at the door. He's probably in an uncomfortable position in a cold, dark cell. He knows kind of the, 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 the persecution is being whipped up in, in the city. He knows that his friends are probably at risk. Who's going to be next after me? And yet, what's he doing? He's asleep. Like, I can sleep through most things. Elizabeth will tell you that's a great annoyance. I just, my head hits the pillow and I'm gone. But not that night. No, I would have been awake. At least I would have been sleeping with one eye open. But Peter's asleep. Now maybe he was just exhausted. We don't know. I'm going to ask him. But Peter knows the power of God. He's seen it. And he's experienced it. He's actually been in this exact same situation before. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and some of the other apostles, they're arrested. They're thrown into jail. And guess what happens in the night? Acts chapter 5, verse 19. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. (laughs) Peter's seen it before. He's experienced it before. And so you get that funny moment. The angel comes into the jail. It's a bright light. Like we see these moments in scripture, right? When, when an angelic being turns up and it's a bright light and everyone's like, whoa. Like we see with, with Paul, it knocks him off his horse, it blinds him. Not Peter, he's fast asleep. The, the angel has to poke him to wake him up. He's seen this before. And here's a great lesson in prayer, folks. Pray with expectation that matches the power of God that we've already experienced. Pray with an expectation that matches the power of God we've already experienced. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, 
okay, bro, I've never experienced that. Like, I've never been busted out of a prison like that. (laughs) Well, you have. Mm -hmm. As we fuel our mission with prayer, folks, we we can afford to pray impossible prayers because we've seen them answered before. All of us who are Christians are the results of impossible prayers being prayed. There was a time when all of us, we didn't follow Jesus. And at that time, our hearts were hardened against God. We didn't love him. We lived against him and his ways. We were his enemies and we were destined for judgment for our sin. And we were imprisoned, imprisoned by death. We were shackled as slaves to our sin. And then our story is the light of the gospel of God broke into our hearts, shone on the hardness of our hearts. And God did the impossible. He saved us. He exchanged our hard, sinful hearts for hearts that love him and want to follow him. And he poured his spirit into our hearts and purchased our forgiveness and purchased eternal life with him through the death and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was impossible for us to free ourselves from death, Satan and sin. It was impossible in our own strength to break free from those shackles. We were too sinful. We were too weak. But God did the impossible. Mm. Folks, when we see and when we look at the scale of the mission that has been given to us in this place, the 98% of the people who stand as enemies before God. When When we engage with them, when we encounter them, when we think about who those people are. Quite often our tendency is just to think, this is just too hard. Like they just seem so far from God. And I've invited them before and they're not, they're not interested. Folks, as a church, we need to be united in prayer. We need to be urgent in prayer and unceasing in prayer. And we get to look at what God has already done. And when we're kind of filled with those doubts, would he do that for them? We get to replay our own story and say, absolutely, he could. Because he's done it for me. And as we replay how the gospel has broken into our hard hearts. And has freed us from our slavery to Satan, sin and death. We get to pray with great expectation that God would do it again. Let's pray. Father, we we do long for our city to be transformed. For men and women and boys and girls to be one to you. And when we think of the scale, even just in our community here, when we think of the scale of the mission in front of us, it's intimidating and sometimes it feels impossible. So drive us to pray. Jesus, more than anything, we want your glory. We don't want to bear the fruit of our glory in this mission. So drive us to prayer. Help us to be a people who are united in prayer. Don't let the enemy get a foothold through our niggles, through our frustrations, through our preferences. Help us to be urgent in our prayer. Help us to see this community as you see them, as sheep without a shepherd. Help us to be unceasing in our prayer, not to lose heart but to press in and to keep praying and help us to be expectant looking at the power of what you've done in our own lives 
already. Pray in faith-fueled prayers. Seeing that the, the mission in front of us, it is impossible through our human strength. But all things are possible through you. And we pray for your will to be done, Heavenly Father. That's hard sometimes. So give us peace. Help us to rest in the knowledge that this is your mission. That you are calling in the lost. And it's our privilege to join with you. So Holy Spirit, pour yourself out in this church and across our community. We pray that you bring liberty, that you bring freedom, by your power that you'd push back darkness for the glory of Christ alone. It's in his name that we pray.